Hey, She Slays listeners. Before we get into the episode, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors, the Focus Academy. So you know chiropractic can help kids, but you lack confidence in your knowledge or communication skills to educate parents in your community. I've got a solution for you. The Focus Academy gives you the training and education to understand the why behind those wins and challenges you're seeing in clinic. They teach you how to perform a full brain-based exam, how to go beyond just the subluxation, but stay principled in your chiropractic approach and address and understand the consequences on brain development. They take a two-pronged approach. First, clinical solutions taught in a way that gives you full access to a deeper and more comprehensive understanding and breaks those techniques and approaches down into digestible and practical steps. Second, right now strategies you can employ wherever you are in your training. You'll learn how to seamlessly ask and answer the big questions in your clinical exams and re-exams and have it actually inform the whole child approach and care planning in a way your patients will understand. And since you're a She Slays listener, you'll get free access to the Focus Academy's Kickstart program. Just click the link in the show notes to get started on your journey to improving your practice. Hey, She Slayers, and welcome to another episode of She Slays the Day podcast. I am your host, Dr. Lauren Brunslick, and I have sat here for the last 10 minutes wondering what funny story I'm going to tell you. Um, and I couldn't come up with anything, and in my procrastination, I found myself on Instagram, and then I found an audio, and then I filmed a reel, and then I'm like, wow, you're really procrastinating here. Um, and then it reminded me back of when I was in school. And the crazy shit I would do to procrastinate studying. Procrastinate? 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 Oh, that word just got weird. That, do you know that that is actually a, a word? There's a word for when words get weird. And ironically, it's a weird word. I can't remember it right now. Um, other interesting things I learned. So last episode, I talked to you about Dickies. Um, I hope that was a very entertaining and educational moment for you, mostly educational, because y'all needed to know that. Uh, this time, I'm going to teach you that I learned that DEFCON 1 is worse than DEFCON 5. Now, I haven't fact-checked this. In fact, I just got it from an episode of Murderville on Netflix. Um with that chick from Schitt's Creek. I forget her name. Anna something? Mm. I don't know. Um, Alexis from Schitt's Creek was on Murderville. And yeah, I learned that DeathCon 1 is not, or is worse than DeathCon 5. And I didn't fact check it before throwing it out to you. So there you go. That is how I roll by now. You should know that, that this is just a podcast full of me talking and opinions. And before you go out into the real world, you should do your homework and fact check what Lauren says. Okay, so today um, we have a, uh, I don't, I, I fangirled this chick on Instagram. Okay, she's a vagus nerve trainer. Um, she's from Australia, just in case you can't pick that up from her accent. Um Speaking of accents, side note, does anybody else do that thing where when you're talking to someone and they have a very specific accent that you start to mimic their accent? Yes, you know. Um, Kirby tells me that the, that's actually a sign of empathy, which I don't, I don't, it can't be true. That's not, you know me, I don't have much empathy. So that's probably not where it's coming from. I actually think it has to do with the fact that I am an Enneagram 3 
and Enneagram threes, their spirit animal is often the chameleon, um, where we are like a chameleon. So I'm just convinced that while I'm talking to someone, my, my brain just starts to be a chameleon right in front of them. I mean, seriously, if you've read about threes, you know, we're just the worst. You never know which authentic version you're getting of us because we just try and be whatever you need us to be in front of you. So you like us. Yeah. Threes are horrible people. But it is part of the reason I like the podcast because I can't see who I'm talking to. So I can't really be anything other than what I am, which full circle, every single episode comes back to this entire damn thing is all about me and not you at all. And that's why I don't think I have empathy and why. But anyway, so she's from Australia and has a lovely accent. And by the end, you guys, I got out of the entire episode without saying shrimp on the Barbie once. I didn't say it. Um, I didn't even speak in any kind of accent again. It, it gets awkward. I'll literally be talking to someone from Canada and if they're like articulate or they may not even be from Canada, they might just articulate their ease a certain way. And within minutes I am starting to do it. So it can get, Kirby will start like pulling at my sleeve and being like, we got to get out of this before she accidentally gets super offensive. I don't mean to. It's just my brain, you guys. But anyway, she's incredible. Back to I started Fangirl. Um, oh, her Instagram is so knowledgeable. She is knowledgeable. I need to give a giant nerd alert to this episode. Um, if you are not familiar with uh, neurology, you might get a little lost in this one. I think there's still going to be a ton for you. So I do encourage you to listen. If it's been a minute since you've um, learned or known what the heck the dorsal versus ventral whatever are, um, then uh, yeah, this is also going to be a, a little a little steep for you. Um, take notes, re-listen. I know I had to like, I get so intimidated when I talk to really smart people because I just feel stupid. I just feel like there's so many times where I'm just talking to someone and I just want to be like, I'm a doctor. I, I used to know this at some point, but that was 11 years ago. Um, so her knowledge of how the vagus nerve works in our body um, is incredible, but don't worry uh, if you do get a little lost, stick through it because she taught, I, one of the questions I ask her is how do you break this down? This very complex, um, anatomy and physiology. How do you break these concepts down for your, for your patients and your clients? And she has a wonderful response. So it will be truly a delight. But before we do that, we are going to do our listener highlight um, our listener li highlight comes from Brooke Brewer. Yep. Pretty sure I said that right, guys. Brr. Yep. That's how we we're going to say it. Uh, it says, thank you so much for your inspiring podcast. It's just what I needed. I've been addicted. Cheers to 2022. And you know what? She sent that. Hmm, when did she say, send that? That was pretty early in 2022. I think it was like the first Sunday. Yeah, you guys, I don't know. She was hopeful. She was hopeful 2022 was going to be great. And we're in the middle of February. I think it's going okay. I don't know. There's some shit storms already happening or still happening, I should say, but uh, we're doing it. I um, I don't know. People are coming out of the woodwork lately to ask me to speak at places. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be places um, this year. I'm going to be at Mile High. Um 
Oh, what was the other thing? I don't know. There's like two or three other things. It's, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a great time. So let's get down to brass tacks. Today's guest, her name is Jessica McGuire, and she has treated patients as a physiotherapist for over 13 years. Her passion for health first led to a degree in health science, and then she went on to complete a master's in physiotherapy. Her specialty now is teaching on the vagus nerve and nervous system through the vagus nerve masterclass. They demonstrate how stress-related illness such as anxiety, depression, gut disorders, autoimmune issues, and chronic pain can arise from dysregulation after chronic or traumatic stress. I mean, I'm assuming just from like at this point in her bio, you can understand why I like needed to have her on, right? Like she is saying, she's talking about all the science that that we as chiropractors talk to our patients about, like dysregulation and like the three T's. It's awesome. So her educational programs harness the power of neuroplasticity, the ability for the brain and nervous system to change, learn, and my favorite, adapt. Her classes equip participants with a toolkit filled of effective evidence-based techniques and restore physical and psychological well-being and help them gain autonomy in managing their health. She believes that knowledge is power and that we are empowered when we have the autonomy to play an active role in reshaping our mind-body system. Um, I'm really excited for you to hear this episode because, again, just so smart, you're going to learn a ton. Before we jump in, let's pray, though. Dear God, thank you so much for the really complicated bodies that you made um, that are self-healing and self-regulating. It is so easy to take for granted how miraculous it is. Thank you so much for all of the healthcare professionals that have devoted their education and their life to learning more and understanding the power that is held inside of it and how to help unleash that power in other people. Anytime I talk to another professional, um, I'm always wanting to ask them, like, do you know about chiropractic? Don't you kind of wish you could adjust someone, someone also? So thank you for the chance to spread chiropractic to other healthcare professionals that are doing similar work parallel to us and just help them hear our message and be able to make recommendations to their clients and patients and incorporate it in because I truly think that um, it changes. It changes the brain on a level more than so many things, so many things. So in your name we pray. Amen. All right. I hope you like it. Here's my episode and my conversation with Jessica McGuire. Are you familiar with the Enneagram? A little bit, yes, but okay. not, I don't know it massively. You don't know what you are? Okay. Usually it's like this running joke that like by the end, if my guests don't know what they are, I'm like dissecting them being like, it's just the Enneagram is one of those personality tests that like, or it's more than that, but like that people just tend to get obsessed with. So I, I have seen a lot, like people even put it in their Insta bio, don't they? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like we, we identify as our number. So that's so funny. It's a bit, yeah. It, you see it with numerology and astrology as well, don't you? Yes. Because well, it's what, hard. Look at that. I see. I've never identified because I'm a Libra technically, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I've never identified as a Libra. 
<laughs> and so that's where it's hard because I didn't get into astrology. I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like it missed the mark on me. So maybe I'm just <laughs> it, it was the wrong day. <laughs> it was the wrong day. I was born in the wrong location. But with that being said, welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thank you for having me, Lauren. Okay, so um you're not a chiropractor. I'm not a chiropractor. We always have really cool people on if they're not chiropractors. So (laughs) go ahead, revise your bio. (laughs) Um, But one of, I have been obsessed with your account for the last year, for sure, because you talk so much about, like you call yourself a Vegas nerve trainer. How did you, what's your background and how did you get to be that? Sure. Um, So when I first started out studying um, post, well, after school, I did a Bachelor of Health Science and it was really looking at exercise physiology and a lot of that was tapping into ECGs or looking at the beats of the heart. Mm. And after that, I went on to become a physiotherapist. So I completed a Master's of Physiotherapist therapy and worked for um, 14 years in clinic. So we'd probably see very similar patients to chiropractors, lots of chronic pain, lots of chronic health conditions and comorbidities. Mm -hmm. Um, After a little while, I really wanted to look more at, you know, because we have a quite a good understanding of the body. Um, So I wanted to understand more from the mind. And so I went into doing more study in terms of clinical mindfulness and how we can really bring together that, what I'd studied before looking at the heart with the brain and how they were interacting. So um, I did some more study into polyvagal theory. And for me, it was like a missing chunk. Like I could see with patients "Mm, there's you know this chronic stuff going on um I'm you know I feel like we're separating the brain and the body and modern pain science from some of the people that I studied with um particular Lorimer Molesley who's an Australian um, neuroscientist he was really looking at how pain was changing the brain which really fascinated me Um, and the concept of a sensitized nervous system so for me, using that lens and understanding that for people following chronic and traumatic stress, that the nervous system could become sensitized to cues of danger as well, um, because it's similar in those areas of the brain as in, in terms of chronic pain and emotional pain. And we probably, you know, we separate them as being physical and emotional, but really, it's, it's that interoception of what sensations are coming from the body up to the brain and how the brain is perceiving that. And it's really fascinating because no two people are going to experience pain the same. No two people are going to experience a traumatic event the same. And so for me, I was really passionate to dive into this concept of what areas in the brain were becoming active for people when they were experiencing pain and physical pain or emotional pain or both Both. yeah and how that was really becoming a learned response rather than necessarily the actual danger because as we know with chronic pain there can be pain coming in that's very real but that doesn't mean tissue damage Mm -hmm. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So were you able to, because as a physiotherapist, so a physiotherapist in America tends to be very uh, physical pain. And, you know, it's like, no, 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 you're not dealing with patients with their IBS. No, 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 you're not dealing with them with their anxiety or their panic attacks or their insomnia. Was that a similar experience? And so, like, how did you kind of, were you getting frustrated of like, I don't want to just work on their low back pain. I want to work on the whole nervous system. So how did you then leave that and start where you are now? Sure. It, that was exactly what you're saying um, is how I felt. And what's frustrating, I think, for anybody who's a body-based therapist is this like, oh, but I can't deal with that. Oh, but that's not mine. Oh, that's that area. And, of course, we need to stay within what's our scope and our skills and our training. Um, but we also shouldn't partition the body off into these systems. I mean, you know, the, the, the pain system speaks to the, the autonomic nervous system, which speaks to the immune system, the endocrine system, the musculoskeletal, the digestive. And whilst I can see, you know, we have this division between the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system, it's really one continuation when you look at it. And so for me, seeing that so much of those chronic issues were related to the autonomic nervous system, which was really the connection between the body and brain, you couldn't, you can't treat one without the other. So, you know, it's been shown that the number one thing that will link to disability and, and length of time that it takes to get better is a person's belief about what's wrong with them. Mm -hmm. That's been proven. Yeah. We've got good research. Yeah. So what's the point of doing so much hands-on technique and working just with the body if this belief is underlying that? And I think we need to have skills to address those beliefs. Where are they coming from? Because if I have a belief that my back is broken, then signals of pain I'm interpreting as a threat in my brain, which is amplified, like amplifying that process. And it's no different than a threat outside of us. Oh my so, gosh. To answer your question on that last bit, so I don't go off on tangents. Don't worry, so do I. This is going to be a <laughs> conversation. <laughs> so for me, getting into that understanding of how from physiotherapy, I went into a two-year um, postgraduate training that really looked at um, how people would sit with those sensations and how what that what their experience is of that, um, and doing that in a in a way that's sensitive to any dysregulation or any sense of threat and fear. And so for me, it was I could marry up the neuroscience of chronic pain um, and looking at anxiety and understanding that they're not separate we need to say that that continuation from the body and the brain is a continuum and that we need to look at both so we don't say you know in Australia there's been a little bit of a pushback saying that manual therapy um, doesn't work and that's not true there's lots of skills that what do you mean I don't know if you know this but chiropractors are having a hard time in Australia too so don't <laughs> yeah. uh, okay yes so it's sort of like we have these um, when new science comes out, there can be a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, can't there? But we do need to look at beliefs and we also have skills of manual therapy, but our skill to help people 
understand what's wrong with them so that they don't see pain as a threat is I think a very, very powerful tool that we can use. Not viewing pain as a threat because viewing it as a threat just kind of continues that cycle. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. It gets, it sensitizes the nervous system the more that we see it as a threat. And that's not happening in conscious areas of the brain, like the cortex. A lot of the time it's happening in the lower centers of the brain. So we need to bring these beliefs with people into awareness and say, what is it that you think is actually wrong? And is that true? Okay. So say more to that. So, okay. So if I summarize what you're saying so far about pain is like, so somebody goes to their medical doctor and they tell them you have chronic pain in your low back um, Mm -hmm. and they send them to physical therapy or physiotherapist or chiropractor or wherever. Mm -hmm. But that pain, that message is they're continuing that and that's continuing to desensitize the nervous system. So how would you, as their, um, not physician, their trainer, or, you know, like, how do you go like, okay, I know your medical doctor said this, but like, how do you dig deeper with them to like kind of retrain the way they're thinking about their physical body? Sure. So I think it's really listening to what they're telling you. And often, you know, there'll be, so let's say, a person comes in who's got high levels of pain and let's say they might've hurt their back moving house. You know, they were packing, they're bending forward and they were deconditioned. And so, yes, there was a, there was an injury, like a, like a strain to the lower mm-hmm. back. And then they are really worried about their work because they feel stressed that they're not going to be able to earn money. Um, so that's amplifying it. They're not sleeping. And then these, these bracings coming in and in their mind, the fear is my back is ruined. It's broken. It's not going to get better. Mm-hmm. So it's really getting into that belief around, well, is that true? Because, you know, chronic nonspecific lower back pain, we see it a lot. Um, and a lot of the time it gets better, but it's that point where somebody is things are still driving that pain, even though we know that from the length of, say it was six weeks, it it would likely have settled down and passed. So when somebody's got that belief around pain that is my back's ruined or broken or even hearing the words that might evoke fear, like degenerative disc disease, Mm -hmm. which we know we have these like, you know, it's like a gray hair or a wrinkle that's going to show on some imaging, things like that. So it's, it's those words that can create fear in the brain that amplifies pain. And that's where we, education is important, where we can say, you know, there's a lot of people with degenerative disc disease, and this has been shown in research that have no pain. So it's how we use that language with people and, and look at what they're believing that's wrong. So along the lines of like using language with our patients and clients, like sometimes I feel like there's the, you know, like polyvagal theory and all of this like mind, brain, body connection and how, you know, you know, just psychosomatic, right? Like, you know, it's kind of this like halt to what the patient is thinking they want me to say. And -hmm. sometimes I really struggle to take this bigger concept and simplify it Mm -hmm. for them without sounding 
woo-woo. Um, does that like, okay, I was going to say, does that translate? Totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. So like, how do you kind of bridge that gap from like, oh no, I know a ton about neuroscience, but here I'm going to talk about like childhood trauma, you know, like how do you bridge that for patients? Mm. I think concepts and metaphors are so useful. Um, so, you know, we, sometimes I feel, well, when I was working as a physiotherapist one-to-one early in the day, (laughs) I would have made every mistake in the book with trying to educate. So I can totally relate to it being a challenge, but I think what can be useful is not putting it to sound like it's all in your head is the first thing. But say for me, something like if I wanted to explain a concept that someone could understand, So let's say the nervous system was sensitized and we knew that there was an old injury and so the tissue would be sending a message to the spinal cord. But let's say from um, things that had been happening, there was that sensitization in the central nervous system. So I might explain that as imagine you hit a D on the keyboard once, for D for danger, and that's the message coming in from the tissue. But what's being shown on the screen is like a whole line of Ds coming up. So it's like the amplification is coming in. And I think that's where we can use really simple concepts and new language. So what I just said, like if you find out that a patient says that, you know, I've I've got my imaging showed, I've got blah, blah, blah. And, and there's things with imaging that we definitely need to seriously but there's also some things that you know it it's probably it 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 might resolve itself and it may not be um something as sinister so then we can use that well what's being shown is studies taken of certain populations this is here in x amount and they have no pain so it's really looking at the sense of where their language is coming in, like a patient may actually say, my back is ruined, it's, you know, broken. And for us to give that sense of, you know, spines are really sturdy, strong and durable rather than a diagnosis of a slip disc, which sounds like it could just slip out and go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's like looking at what's being created when a person set, has a concept of what's wrong with them, how can we re re explain that in a way that's it's not sugarcoating it but it's based on modern you're getting hope you're yes, getting exactly. Hope. Yeah. exactly. Kind of, so that sounds like that's kind of that first step with a new patient is like to like really listen to where they're at and then like truthfully be figure out how you can give them hope which kind of breaks that fear cycle am i understanding Exactly, exactly. Exactly. And then simple things like, you know, so if they, if you know they're sitting all the time and their pain gets worse, it's looking at like one of the sayings I love is like that motion is lotion. So it's like moving that synovial fluid through the joints, that motion is lotion for the joints because that will stick in their brain when it rhymes. It's, it's little simple ways of that rather than a big complex explanation that I found is it will get people better results. Um, and and that it, it, it's not an easy thing to do by any means. I think saying less and like simple is better though than being complex explanations. 
Right. So you had kind of mentioned polyvagal theory is, are we, is like, are we just becoming more obsessed with is polyvagal theory and vagus? Are they the same thing? Like what is the polyvagal theory, just the study of what the vagus does? Yeah. So we can look at it as, you know, we used to have our two branches of the nervous system where autonomic nervous system, where we'd say we have the sympathetic, which is like the accelerator, the brake is the parasympathetic. And that's still definitely, you know, true. But what Stephen Porges found was that there's two sub-branches of that parasympathetic and they still slow us down, but in very different ways. So the, we can look at it by looking, understanding the ventral part of the vagus nerve, which runs from the brainstem more to the heart, it innovates up also to the face. So we have what we call a social engagement system where it's linking into how we connect with others. And the ventral branch is myelinated. So it's got the you know coating around it that makes it more accurate with its impulses. Um, it's more recently evolved. So basically what happens is when we want to slow our physiology down, the vagal break can come in and slow us down a little bit so that our physiology calms down. And it actually always has a dampening effect on our heart. So it's like if you're riding a bike downhill, you would just keep a little bit of that vagal break on so you didn't go too fast. And so that's such a finely tuned system that we can just relax a little bit. Say I want to do something like, speak to you and I'm really excited about this topic. I absolutely love it. So my vagal break would just relax a little bit and that would allow more sympathetic into my system so that I can focus on what you're saying. I will have, um, you know, that, that mobilizing energy, but it's not moving into fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And then after that's over, I can engage that vagal break and slow down. We do know that following chronic and traumatic stress, people may have their vagal break off um, or not on as much. And then when they try to bring in that mobilizing energy, it can be a complete release. And that's when they move into anxiety, fight or flight, when it's really, you know, not probably the response that they want for what they're facing. Does that make sense? Multiple questions. Okay. <laughs> so you talked about like, okay, so if you were really excited to talk about yes. something, you would like activate your vagal break. Is that something like consciously you would do of like, okay, okay, Jessica, I need to calm down, like take breaths, like meditate or so the well-equipped very- nervous system does it automatically? It's, yeah, it's happening in lower centers in the brain. So down in the brainstem, which means that, you know, we can't, think about it to make it happen, but it's actually more of a withdrawal of the vagal break. So it comes off a little bit, but then after that exciting part's over, just like riding the bike downhill, it re-engages. So we go, our heart rate comes up a little bit. We have higher blood pressure, but you know, that's vitality. That's enthusiasm. That's that exuberant energy that we want. And then it comes back in. Okay. So, so not, I mean, this sounds so stupid. I always feel stupid when I'm talking to experts. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I swear I didn't know. <laughs> so, but, you know I kind of view sympathetics as bad, mm. but I mean, the kind of the way you were talking about, like, 
pulling off the vagal break to allow sympathetics in, you said? Yes, to- exactly. So, so we, that- we demonize sympathetic and yeah. say, it's, it's wrong, we don't want to go in that. But that's not true. Like the essence of burnout is an exhausted sympathetic. It's lack of sympathetic and the vagal break off. So you are just in a state of burnout. So that's the other branch of the vagus nerve. So we can then look at the the dorsal vagal. So that's the branch. It goes more down to our gut. It's a very primitive system. So it's not myelinated. Now, if you think of this as still driving a car or riding a bike or something, it would be like putting the handbrake on to slow down. So it just brings you to a stop. You feel that heavy, lethargic, flat feeling. And so what happens is if we look at it in in terms of facing a threat, you'll see that when we're in, we might look at this as a traffic light. So in the green part, that's where we have access to our ventral vagal. We can engage with people. You'll see it in somebody's, well, you hear it in somebody's voice. So there's prosody because the ventral part of the vagus connects to the throat. So you know how a mom will hold a baby and she'll be going, ah, da, 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 da. that's co-regulation for her with her bub. So she is using her voice instinctively to bring a soothing sense with prosody. So when somebody's in that state, we can hear it in their voice. They'll, they'll have expression in their upper face so they can smile and you'll see the sense of that coming through the eyes too. And they'll also be primed to listen for the sound of human voice. So the muscles of the middle ear change so that we detect mid-frequency sounds. So our physiology changes to help us connect with each other in that state. But then let's say we move into the sympathetic state well, where we have that sympathetic energy facing a threat, not like before where I was saying we take the break off and we let that energy come in. This is facing mm-hmm. a threat. Those systems change and you'll hear it in somebody's voice, right? They might be angry. So there'll be that monotone voice that sounds more like this or we hear it with anxiety where there might be more talking like this and that tightness around the throat. They more smile with their, just the mouth and not their eyes. And they hear more what we would say predator sounds, which is low frequency sounds. So it's hard to negotiate. It's hard to have conversations where we can be delicate about things when somebody's in that state of fight or flight because they're probably not even really listening to or can listen well with what's being said. And then what Stephen Porges found was that under threat, people then, if they can't deal with that in that yellow state, they fall, or the orange traffic light, say, we're talking about here, they fall back into what we might say is a red, the red state where um, it brings them to a complete stop. And so that's where that dorsal vagal branch comes in acts like a break, totally immobilizes the system and somebody moves into a feeling of shutdown or their energy just drops or they're sort of like stuck, like deer in the headlights. And so this is where it gives us, polyvagal theory gives a a, a greater understanding than just we speed up or we slow down. 
because those two different slowing down mechanisms are totally different and create different responses and we can see it chronically that if somebody keeps going into that red state of slowing down you know that's going to affect their digestion that there might be chronic fatigue there might be this sense of i can't get going you know and it's and they feel like they're being lazy or they're just not being um motivated enough but it can be a physiological response and that that there is is showing what links into burnout burnout yeah Yeah. are we do you think i mean obviously you're i don't know how old you are but you're not a (laughs) hundred do you think that we have so like i'm 35 i have a seven and nine year old girl i've got three chiropractic clinics a podcast of this of that a poppy i don't know why i added a poppy into the mix (laughs) like i love my life like i love everything but I would probably say that I am flirting with burnout have, but you know, and honestly, when I talk to my friends, love their husbands, love their kids, love their jobs, very, very stressed, like very, very stressed. Like, is this, do you think that we as a society, as a earth are just speeding up and getting worse at balancing our tone of our nervous system or like if we would have gone back to world war ii would we just be two 35 year old women's drinking wine and complaining about being in burnout (laughs) it's such a good question i love this i suppose to look at it in the sense of stress itself so you know, we stress gets this really bad name, but we have an inbuilt capacity to deal with stress and recover. So stress isn't bad for us. In fact, stress is actually good for us if we can recover from it. I but what I think that I think the problem is like so say, let's imagine, you know, we say, I mean, I'm going to say most of your listeners listeners will remember homeostasis. You know, we have this baseline, we go up, we go down. So let's say if we imagine that baseline and then stress is mobilized or our energy is mobilized to do with the stress. And then we have this time where we'd come back to baseline. What happens is our energy is mobilized. So we see that increase. And at the same time, we have a release of the vagal break. So vagal tone goes down. Now, if we get to recover, they come back to where they started from. We carry on. But what I would wonder is, do we actually get that recovery from stresses? Um, and this is where, you know, we, we can understand neurobiology and say that stress and trauma are on a continuum. So rather than saying, oh, this is stress, oh, this is completely different, this is trauma, physiologically they actually have a similar response. So if, if I'm under chronic stress, so I'll give you an example from last year, what I experienced when I was seeing patients in clinic was we had in Australia the bushfires at the start of the year. And so this would, sorry, this was 2020. So this would see a lot of people experience that stress. But before they got to recover from that, COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And then there was the next wave where they had like the financial ramifications of not being able to work. So it was this permanent elevation of the sympathetic and drop out of vagal tone that didn't get to complete that recycle, that cycle and come back to baseline. 
So what that meant was the nervous system was becoming tuned to a new baseline that was higher up. And so then it wasn't that they were coming back down to the place where their system could have rest, repair, the immune system was functioning well, the endocrine, the digestive system. So we can have a tuning of our nervous system to be a little bit like the vagal break is always off because that's what happens. And then when we face a future stress, our system's going too fast and we move into fight or flight and we don't come back down to put the vagal break back on and slow back down. So I think where we see it is that people spend this chronic time in that with the sympathetic activation on and then something happens and that system gets exhausted and they drop down into burnout. But if the vagal break isn't there to slow us down, then we rely on that dorsal system which brings us down into like feeling exhausted so it's like someone you know crashing to meet a deadline and then they might be in bed for two days with a migraine afterwards so it's it's our culture definitely pushes us to be a little bit with that sympathetic on but that's okay if we get to have the periods of recovery I think what's happening though is the periods of recovery don't get to come in for a lot of people. Um, so if you don't, if we can't rely on society to not be a garbage fire um, for that recovery. So one of the things I've seen on your Instagram and even you just alluded to it um, with the mom, like connecting with her baby. Yes. Seems like human connection. Is that play a big role in this? Absolutely. I think it's the most overlooked thing for our health. So, you know, we all know there's biological things that can affect our health. Um, You know, we could hurt ourselves, we could get sick, it's our genetics. And then there's also the psychological things that um, we can look at, like our thoughts, our beliefs. Um, And then, but the other part that people don't talk about are those social things. So our connections, how our relationships are, but you know, our community as well, in person, online. Um, Sometimes you've only got to scroll through a comment section on a post and you start to feel yourself go, oh, my gosh, this is just awful. So it's very much a makeup of those three things, which is the biological, psychological and social, which some of your listeners may have heard of the biopsychosocial model of health. So we can really say that pain is a biopsychosocial event or we can look at it under that framework that all those things matter but also with stress it's the same thing all three can influence it but you know it's not to say biomedical things don't matter of course they do like an injury matters but how we then um, recover or how we recover from stress really depends on that and I think there's been a big shift coming in a lot of language around not being codependent so this may be planting a seed that people Yeah, that's like a million dollar therapy word now, right? <laughs> you hear it a lot. You hear it a lot. my codependency with my mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. But I mean, humans need connection. And of course, we don't want to just rely on other people for everything. Like, we understand that. But I feel that there's a shift so much now, or maybe that's just in the world that I'm in, that has is basically saying to people you should be able to handle this on your own Mm -hmm. and 
what science has shown is that, you know, in a time, in times of stress, just being around another person who has, let's say their vagal break is on and their physiology is regulated, just being around that person, having connection, a conversation with reciprocity back and forth, that will help the, the stressed person's nervous system attune to the other person and come towards regulation. So we hear the voice of somebody who is, you know, has that prosody, the expressions of their face, um, the gestures, all of that can really, really help us to come back to a regulated state. Are we talking like minutes, hours, like how long? <laughs> like what if they're really good? Depend. Yeah, it would really depend. I think, and I think, you know, that's where we can see as, as you know, for health professionals, when people come in and we have that session with them and we right. stay in that regulated state and they leave and there's a definite mood shift from the patient, you know, they can come in quite stressed and then they walk out. Like, yes, treatment is obviously so important, but what is equally is important is our that, that time when if they leave with more regulation because they've been with us and we've been regulated, like that is medicine. That is a treatment. That is yeah, so I think that's important. why I was asking where I'm like, so like if I spend five to 10 minutes with a patient, but I am like just doing all those things and being great for them, like I can help them a little bit, right? In addition to the adjustment and the things we're doing. That's totally. not, yes. okay. Yeah, and, and just to add on that also, I, I guess it's not really taught to um, health professionals, but I, I would have really appreciated knowing that also we have limits. You know, we, we can't just be around people who are experiencing strong anxiety or really stressed and not have some of that come to us as well. So, you know, just to be mindful about of, of limits in playing that role as the regulated one too and know that, you know, maybe I don't, I don't know how long your treatment sessions are, but, you know, I can remember the days when I worked as a physio and it was sometimes 18 patients a day. And that's, you know, that's a lot of people to see who might be experiencing a really hard time and just knowing that we, we need to take care of our own limits as well with that. Did you have back when you were see, like that, that I can, you know, it's interesting because I, um, I might see 18 people in like an hour sometimes, but just hearing you say it, I'm like, 18 people that you're caring for. That's a lot. So like, did you have practices as a healthcare provider after your day of like, I am helping people regulate their nervous system. And then like, did you have things that you did in the morning before your shift or after, or like even now, like you work with people. So like, what do you do to kind of detach? Sure. So I think the, the main thing for me is always being movement. Like I'm very much, a, I need to have that movement to, to regulate for me, for my physiology. Um, I used to find just a quick walk after work, you know, 15 minutes discharge, that stress was, was great. I think though the most important thing is in the moment recognising for yourself. One of the techniques that I found really useful was say, you know, you're working with a um, person and say you're sitting and you feel like a little bit of overwhelm yourself. It was really saying, okay, I can feel my spine resting against the back of the chair. Can I just keep my awareness there for a moment? 
and I feel that I'm getting overwhelmed, but if I can just focus my attention here as I'm listening, I'm also taking care of, you know, listening, say, to this, to a story that might be quite heavy or it shocks me or something along those lines. So little things in the moment I think are equally as important. And there's a lot of emphasis now that, you know, 30 minutes of doing this practice and who has time to, you know, six to 30 minutes? It's it's just not, I, for me, that was not really an easy thing to tie in. So I, I think the tools that you can use in the moment that you notice for yourself that you're getting to your edge, you know, where you might be feeling, oh, oof, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed at the moment. Things that you can do in the moment are, are more useful than, say, when you're chilled out and at home doing things then. Um, they, they're both important, but for me, that's what I found I needed more of when I was working in clinic. I feel like where I feel it the most when I'm getting like overwhelmed is either in my jaw and throat, like tightening or my heart. Or is there like something specific that I could do when I like feel that happening? Because like I've heard like that sometimes like humming or yawning or or some of those like. I can't be yawning in front of patients though. (laughs) 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 I'm still listening. I'm just trying to detach your shit from my shit. Well, the jaw is definitely where our defensive strategies, you know, that's 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 quite a primal area where our if if we think of the sympathetic, um, the gritting of the teeth or the showing of the teeth is like a primal animal thing. Um, definitely sometimes it's a tricky one, right? So you can focus your attention in the area, but it may amplify it, or you focus your attention somewhere else. Um, and that can actually shift that. So like I was saying, with paying attention to the back of the body, particularly like the spine touching something, it can be enough just to bring that heat, like that sympathetic back down to, and then the body takes care of itself. Um, the yawning is often more of a discharge of that stress activation. Um, so it's like when we feel our that that sense of activation in our body um, or it can be you know thoughts racing or whatever and once we feel that we come back down we might notice um, it can be many things like some people's belly gurgle they burp they get that sense of warmth or release or they they sort of have a little uh, and then they then it's the yawn and, it, and you can feel that that energy shift so um that, that can be helpful, but I think for people it's really getting to know a toolkit of things and, and that you can go through in the heat of the moment and that's going to be different for if you're in that sympathetic state where it's racing thoughts, going fast, and it's going to be different if you drop down into that sense of the dorsal vagal state of feeling flat and down. And so lots of people say, what's the best tool? There isn't one. There really isn't. And everybody's got a different nervous system as well. So it's learning lots of different things and also learning what it is like becoming a student of your own nervous system. So it's like, what are the things that bring me the the most regulation? And for me, it definitely is movement and it definitely is being around um, people who have that real, you know, you know that they're in a regulated state. Um, I found that's been the 
the quickest things, but that that's probably not the case for you. You know, it could be completely different. So I think it's getting to know, um, really building what we call autonomic awareness. So it's like knowing in the moment, oh, I recognize the jaw. Oh, I recognize the heat. Okay, sympathetic. What can help me in the moment? Start to practice. And if the tool doesn't work, have something else because it changes on different days. Um, it changes depending on what's going on for us and and where we are and, and and all sorts of things like that. So just to clarify, so you talked about like the racing thoughts versus the like burnout, basically. The same nervous system can be experienced both, right? Not at the same time, but like, okay, you can like switch throughout the day. I'm going to say, I don't know which one I am. I'm broken. Are people broken in both? Um, (laughs) It's it's that we can, throughout the day, we do shift between different states and that's completely normal. What it becomes a problem is if we get stuck in, say, for a long period of time or stuck down in that dorsal vagal state for a long period of time. And that's what we say is the essence of dysregulation. So, you know, we can't really say for, say, you and I could experience exactly the same thing. And for me, let's say um, I've been, I've had something similar like that happen in my past and it was traumatic. Um, I felt helpless and powerless. I may have a different response. I'm talking on a neurobiological biological level than you you might feel oh that was pretty intense but I'm okay moving on as where for me I could um, have a shift in my nervous system that creates a extreme response of the sympathetic and then an extreme response of the dorsal and that's really where we'd say it was traumatic stress and so then I may continue to respond after that event with an activation of that sympathetic and an activation of that dorsal, I could swing between the two or I could even feel in a freeze state where I feel I'm stuck, but I've got all this activation of sympathetic flooding through me. And that's what we would say um, could be considered as one way to say it's traumatic stress. Um, rather than say, you know, you, you feel the sympathetic activation. Yeah. Right. Um, so it depends on the person. It depends on their previous trauma, what they're going through. So does that mean you do not have like a favorite breath work that you, cause I'm assuming you talk with your patients about breath work. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. The breath like is a really great bridge between the, the body and that because it's connecting to the brain stem. Why does, what, what's the like, why does breath work actually, what is it about breathing that on a neurological sure. level? This is like one of my favorite things in the whole Okay, world. I was going to say, as it's coming out of my mouth, I'm like, oh God, you just asked a really nerdy question. I hope she does the answer. <laughs> oh, I love it, I love it, I love it. So when it really ties into that bit about the vagal break. And what happens is we can say that when we breathe in, the vagal break comes off a little bit. So our heart beats a little bit faster. When we breathe out, it re-engages. So our heart slows down a fraction. So the heart doesn't beat like a metronome, you know, it's got variation. And so heart rate variability can measure at rest with ECG leads on 
what that looks like, how much there is a variation between the in-breath and the out-breath. So we want to see that variation because it tells us that the vagal break is dampening the heart a little bit at the sinoatrial node, which is the heart's pacemaker. So if we took a heart rate variability and it was a healthy person, um, there would be a higher variation between the in-breath and the out-breath, which would create a big wave, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But if we took the heart rate variability for somebody who had been experiencing chronic and traumatic stress, the vagal breaks off, there would be low heart rate variability because it's off already. So when I breathe in, my heart's not speeding up that much more. And when I breathe out, the vagal break isn't engaging. So we've seen in the science that low heart rate variability is associated with prolonged anxiety or prolonged emotional dysregulation we see that it's associated with chronic health issues and comorbidities. So when we look at the breath, it is a way that you can improve heart rate variability. So people don't need to go out and assess if they've got low or high heart rate variability. And there's a lot coming out in the apps, but whether that's accurate yet, I'm not convinced. I think it will come in time, but I don't think it's 100% accurate there yet. Um, but really, when we, when we look at what happens with the breath, as the lungs stretch, those receptors send a message up to the brainstem, which will actually make the vagal break come in and work. So, the, the patterns really depend on the person. I do see with breastwork, people get really super excited and they tend to do, and you see like, you know, sternocleidomastoid is switched on, the upper, upper traps are switched on, and that can create more tension through the body that may not actually signal that things are good. Right. So it's slowly building up. And look, the variations are enormous in what you can do with breastwork. Um, and, and there's some things that we can use the breath to, um, you know, up regulate, we can use it to down regulate, but what the science has shown is that if you can begin at a place where it might be that the in breath and the out breath are equal and lengthened and begin to use that, that's wonderful. Now I need to just pop onto that bit though, that we also just want to be mindful for a lot of people paying attention to the sensations of the breathing. If they experience anxiety, that can make them feel worse. So just to be mindful of, yes, it's well, a great I, I saw something on your Instagram where you talked about like where meditation for some people can make it worse. Yes, it can. Absolutely. And that comes down to the, the in polyvagal theory, Stephen Porges came up with the word neuroception. So that's how we detect if people or places are safe, dangerous or life-threatening. So that's happening again in lower centres in the brain. It's not happening in um, the cortex where we have thinking and planning and reasoning. It's happening down in that area. So the two things that inform neuroception is exteroception, so what's happening around us, what we see, what we hear, touch, things like that, but also interoception, which is the sensations that are happening inside our body 
what we're what sensations we're experiencing. So when we see what happens to people following traumatic stress, there's often a dissociation from the body because those sensations feel overwhelming. It's not a conscious choice. It's just that it's an adaption to not feel so much sensation. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a very smart adaption too. But chronically when that happens, we dampen down the feedback loops between, between the brain and the body. Um, so that can cause, you know, a lot of um, digestive issues and things like that. So by, by meditation, I've got to say, is a fantastic tool. It's so wonderful. But the message that I'm trying to say is that it, it's not for everybody all the time because for some people to then dive back into feeling sensations of a racing heart, butterflies in the tummy, panicked breathing, that can signal up to the survival brain that there's a threat and that can amplify dysregulation because if we go back to neuroception, it's interoception and exteroception that that decide how we change states of our nervous system. So in saying that post, which of course gets a lot of people going, what? And, and that's great for me i'm like see i told you i don't need to meditate it's bad for me <laughs> <laughs> told you well i don't want to sit still <laughs> you have this issue with your client right like i like they're just like they can tend to be like just go 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 do they mm. resist i think for a lot of people if there's a sympathetic activation and you don't mobilize if you don't discharge that mobilization it makes it worse. So it's finding ways to help them discharge the mobilization and then they might want to sit still. But sometimes, you know, if there is that lots of, uh, say the bagel breaks off and the person has a lot of sympathetic energy coming in and they could easily go into fight or flight and then you start paying attention to those sensations, you're, you're mobilizing the system more. So it's like putting the accelerator down further what would benefit that person is like, okay, why don't I go for that? Like, you know, really fast walk, discharge it. Then they're like, okay, I've calmed down a little bit. Maybe now I'll use a technique, but it might be paying attention on the outside of the body or paying attention to something away before coming into the body. But what we've got to look at is for somebody who's got a sensitized nervous system that is, is, more efficient at moving into survival states is it really what serves them best that's what the question should more be and this isn't to say that any practice is bad or wrong or we shouldn't do it it's really about saying okay this is a medicine for a person what's the right dose and when should they take it okay so two final questions (laughs) I don't forget what my second question is. <laughs> what does, what is working with you? Like you have a course, I am. right? Um, and that, that would benefit like healthcare practitioners and like just anybody, right? Can you talk about it and like what working with you, like what kind of process you take people through? And- sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have a six week program coming up in March, mid-March. Um, and basically that is, rolled out with a module that comes out at the start of the week and then we do a live call later on in the week where we practice those techniques together 
answer questions. Um, it's, it's a lot of different modalities that we use that are delivered through video, audio. We also have a lot of workbooks that we use to really get people to go, what's this like for me? You know, because I've talked about as a framework of the nervous system, what we can understand, but it's really getting to know our own and also really knowing, like once we know the things that might set us off a little bit, we can, we can have that, 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 that's really powerful knowledge because then we're ready to go, ah, my nervous system gets really sensitized to that. Um, and yeah, it runs over six weeks, but we do follow up with an integration call about a month later. So people get a chance to go off and practice on their own. Um, and then we come back together and then following on from that, we have our alumni. So for people that want to really dive in more, they can do that. We've got a three-day summit that's coming up for the people who've graduated from the program in a couple of weeks. Um, and we roll out three events per year for people to um, attend and learn as much as they want about the nervous system. And you have to be an alumni to get to the events? Yeah. So we, we basically recommend that the, you need the program first to learn all those concepts. Like interoception is one of the most important ones. Um, we do a lot where we talk about that connection with the gut and the brain. Um, a lot on blended states too, such as what I was talking about with, say, the sympathetic. And when we've got enough break on, it can give us a lot of energy. So we, we finesse it that way. Okay. Second question. What are you reading? What are you listening to? Like, you seem like a nerd. I'm here for it. I love it. Um, you referenced Stephen Corgis a couple of times. Like, Corgis have a book. Like, what do you recommend um, that people like who want to like read and listen more to? Sure. Well, because it's right here next to me, and it's been, and it's, and we're, you know, we're we're coming from a group of people that love. Um, uh, working with the body and that kind of thing. This book is really great. It's called Explain Pain. Um, and this is actually written by two Aussies. So David Butler and Laura Mulmolesley. And that goes into a lot of those concepts that I was talking about that you can use to explain to patients, um, you know, how to simple things to put in there and, and the language that we use and to understand that amplification in the brain. So I think that one might be a really good one for listeners um, if they're keen to learn more on that side. Absolutely. Okay, so then, okay, final question B. Um, where, where's your website? How do people find you? And we'll make sure it's all in the show notes and stuff too. But Sure, so you can go to jessicamaguire.com um, and then also my Instagram handle is repairing the nervous system. Um, we do post there a bit as well. So yeah, find us on other events. Can you sign up for the, the course on either one? Yes, you can. Yeah, all the details will be there. Well, thank you so much. I <laughs> fascinating. I'm going to pretend that I was able to understand 75%. I'm not going to go back and listen and like take notes and like bring out my anatomy book and learn, but I, I love it so much. Thank you so Same. much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Lauren. All right, cheese slayers, um, go for, for bare minimum. You have to go stalk her Instagram. It's beautiful and educational and I love it. Um, and then check out the course because like, I really think as 
healthcare provider is like just taking like, first of all, yes, we need to do this to ourselves, but being able to take these concepts like and be the conduit for our patients. I just, it's just wonderful. So until next week, bye. Hey, She Slayers, are you looking to get your team off the phone and streamline your front desk so you can spend more time doing what you love? SCED has exactly what you're looking for. They will automate all your appointment reminders, missed appointment reminders, reactivation campaigns, allow you to have two-way texting with your patients. Plus, they have a very cool app that your patients are going to love. The app alone saves chiropractors tons of time because it gives patients the flexibility to move appointments to a time that works better for them. Don't worry, you won't lose control of your schedule because you'll have access to all the parameters that keep you still in control. Plus, there's overbook protection, so your schedule won't get out of hand. SCED was created by a chiropractor for chiropractors, so you can rest assured that you're getting the absolute best system for your office. Dr. Eric Kowalki is committed to the chiropractic mission, and he works closely with his developers to always be innovative so that we have the best system available. If you're hesitant to switch to SCED because you already use something else, let me tell you, it's worth every penny. Plus, mention that you heard about it on my podcast and they'll give you a discount. Seriously, it is a game changer. Don't wait.